This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome again to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance. I'm going to be addressing another follow-up from the sermon that we did in Romans chapter 1. We did three weeks kind of following up on Romans 1 and the teaching that the Bible has on the subject of homosexuality. That is driven by the questions that come up for us culturally around the subject of sexuality and what the Bible teaches, and I hope that we've been both kind and clear in what we've taught there. But really, if you look at Romans chapter 1, the core subject matter of Romans 1 and the indictment of the pagan world that God gives in Romans 1, 18 and following, the core subject is not homosexuality. The core subject is idolatry. The thing that we pointed out in the sermon on Romans chapter 1 is that what all of us in all of the world are guilty of is the exchange of the proper worship of the true creator God for an idol, for something else that we put into his image. We talked about how idolatry is not just simply bowing down to a statue of wood, hay, or stubble. It could be that, but instead, Ken Sandy's quote was helpful. It's a reminder that idolatry is anything we love and pursue in place of God. It's something that's a false God, a functional God, or a substitute God. When we talk in biblical terms, then an idol may be a statue of wood, stone, or metal, but it might just simply be something we have put in the first place of the heart, which God alone is supposed to occupy. So what I want to do is a follow-up on this subject of idolatry, because in Romans 1, we touched on it, but I want to go a bit deeper. How do you identify what an idol is? And once you see the idol of the heart, how is it that you can treat it? What is it that you do to weaken the grip of idolatry and to grow your love of God in its place. So let's talk first about how do you identify idols in your life. So if we start with this definition, remember, of idolatry, that idolatry is a substitute or a functional God. What that means is you take the verbs of your life that are supposed to relate to God, trust, love, worship, serve, follow, and instead they become verbs you relate to something else. Instead of trusting God to free you from pain, you turn to alcohol to medicate. You turn to substances. That's taking the action verb of trust that's supposed to be orienting toward God and turning it instead to something in creation. And it's explicit, not only in Romans 1, Colossians chapter 3 tells us, put to death what's earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so again, notice there, Paul says, put to death covetousness, wanting something that your neighbor has. And then Paul says, that is idolatry. Coveting what your neighbor has is a form of worshiping something other than the one true God. But the trickiest thing with idolatry is that idolatry, or something that can substitute as a false God or a functional God, it's rarely that those things in and of themselves are explicitly sinful or inherently evil. Instead, the way the Bible describes the way we relate to an idol is it uses this word, epithumia. Sometimes it's translated lusts 
or uh, passions. It's, it's a Greek word made of kind of two parts. Epi, which means over, and thumia, which is a, a love. It's, in other words, idolatry is rarely seen in loving something innately evil. Instead, idolatry is an epithumia, an overloving of that which is good. Idols are generally over-attachment to good things that spin out of control, okay? You start out with the good desire of friendship and companionship, and you end up with the broken addiction and idolatry of sex outside of marriage. You see, you didn't start with the sin, you started with an overloving of something that's good. So, how do you figure out what could be gripping your heart as an idol of the heart, and then how do you treat that? When I try to work through the subject of idolatry, I generally think there are three main symptoms to idolatry that you can note and you can see to begin to see when something is moving from a good thing to a God thing in your life. Here's the three symptoms. We'll name them and then we'll look at them. Symptom number one is you look at your patterns of sin. Symptom number two is you look at inordinate emotion. So emotion that is out of control. And then pattern number three, you look at sacrifice. What is it that you're giving up to pursue the idol? So let's unpack those briefly. Patterns of sin reveal the idols of our heart. Elise Fitzpatrick, a biblical counselor, wrote this. She said, if you're willing to sin to obtain a goal, or if you will sin when you don't get what you want, then your desire has taken God's place and you are functionally an idolater. If you're dating someone and your relationship with the boyfriend becomes an idol, you'll find yourself willing to compromise your moral standards to keep in the relationship. Purity and holiness goes out the window because what good would Jesus be if a boy doesn't like you? You see, what's happening there is the pattern of sinful compromise is pointing to the root idolatry behind it. If you have a pattern of anger connected to a desire for control, okay, that could be an example. So look carefully at the patterns of sin in your life. Not just, and again, not just a sin, but patterns. Repetition is the key. So idolatry can be seen if you'll identify where your patterns of sin are. Secondly, idolatry can be revealed if you'll look at where your inordinate emotions show up. Okay, an inordinate emotion is an emotion that does not match. It's out of control. It's out of whack, okay? I had one of these when I was in high school. A guy called me a wuss after a hard uh, track practice, and I proceeded to, like, smash his head into a locker. I just lost it because he was... He was threatening something deeper inside of me. I wasn't just a little annoyed. I was out of control because I never wanted to be seen as weak. Okay. I always wanted to be the success. So my out-of-control emotions would rise up when anyone challenged that idea of who I was. Take a look at where do you get most frustrated. It's, it's okay to cry and be sad, but is there something where it's like, I'm not just we, you know, crying tears. I, I'm out of control with this. What, what is an out of control emotion? Something that seems like I can't get a hold of it. Because when you have a functional God, a first place thing in your heart, whatever holds your heart moves your emotions. 
So look at your inordinate emotions. Do you have emotions that are out of control? Then the third place that I'd want to look at patterns of idolatry would be not only patterns of sin or out of control emotion, but sacrifice. In the ancient world, the idols always demanded sacrifices, physical sacrifices, money or things or food. Every idol demands a sacrifice, but it might be a sacrifice of your time, a sacrifice of your talents, a sacrifice of what you treasure. So where do you spend your free time? What do you find yourself daydreaming or dreaming about? What do you spend your money on? What are you willing to sacrifice a ton of money on, actually? What is it that you sacrifice? So as you look at those kind of patterns of sin, inordinate emotions or sacrifices, they can reveal where idols of the heart will show up. A second thing that can be helpful is you're looking out, not just at an idol that's a statue, but something that holds the first place in the heart, is to know that there are some common um, patterns that idolatry shows up in in the world. So I'm going to give you four big categories. Tim Keller, other writers on this subject will point out others. One is the idol idols found in relationships. Secondly, idols found in identity. Thirdly, idols found in pleasure. And then fourthly, idols found in religion. So let's just talk about each of those briefly. So relationship idols, remember, an idol most often takes a good thing and makes it a God thing. And so what we need to realize is relationships are good. In the Bible, uh, there are all sorts of ways the Bible is very pro-relationship. In fact, the first thing God says is not good in the whole Bible is when he sees Adam alone. You simply could read the book of Proverbs and you'll see friends are a really big deal in life because God made us in his image as a relational God. We are relational people. So relationships are wonderful gifts. But when a relationship becomes an idol, what's happened is the relationship begins to define us. So sometimes you'll see the, the term analogy there, codependency. I'm, I am what the other person thinks I am, and I can't be happy if they're not happy, and whatever they feel is what I feel. The whole world could tell you you're beautiful, but your boyfriend says you're ugly, you're ugly. You see, that relationship now defines you. Relationships also, you can see them uh, beginning to go idolatrous when you have a total directional pull. You can't make a decision apart from your friends. Whatever, so human beings are pack animals, but if you have an inability to break from the pack, you might have an an idolatrous desire for relationship. And then remember, you could look to your your out-of-control emotions. If if a particular relationship is always full of drama, you always feel at a high or at a low, just totally lost, that's a symptom. Pardon me while I clear my throat into the microphone. The other way that you can see when a relationship might become idolatrous is to look at what happens when you don't have the relationship you want. So some people, you can have an idolatrous love of money, by the way, whether you're rich or poor. Do you understand? It's not just that you have something that lets it be idolatrous. Some people who idolize relationships the most are single adults who believe that marriage would solve everything that feels broken in their life. You see, loneliness can actually display the hold of idolatry. 
And when you have a relationship idol, here's what I want you to realize. Every relationship, every idol makes false promises to you. It promises that it can give you something that only the one true God can. So what's the false promise of relationships? You could summarize it in a very simple phrase. The false promise of an idolatrous relationship says this, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you. You'll never be lonely. But here's the problem. No one and nobody can make that promise. No one and nobody. Only the one true God revealed in Jesus can make the promise, I will be with you always. My wife is my dearest friend in the whole world. And Crystal and I made promises to one another on our wedding day that we would be with one another. But there was a very important caveat we put on those promises. We said, until death do us part, because the simple reality is one of us, at some point, will walk the other, not down the aisle in marriage, but we'll walk down the aisle of a funeral. And if the idol and the central definer of my life is in the casket, who will hold my heart? You see, no one can make a promise, I'll never leave you or forsake you, but Jesus can. Jesus can. And he can deliver on it. So, relationships can become idolatrous. Second thing to consider as a pattern of where idols of the heart can manifest is identity. And by an identity idol, what I mean, it's the category of idols that claim you are what you do, what you have, or what you do well. Glad that I have that beeping noise on my computer right there. Man, I'm coughing in the mic. This is beeping. This is a professional podcast, guys. Write that down. Okay, so let's go back. Identity idols. Let's say um, you're a college student and academics is an idol. An identity idol says you are your GPA. You know, you get older, you are your job. You are, if appearance is your idol, you are your designer genes. If your possessions are your identity idol, you are your car. You are what people see as what you are. And again, sports, academics, having nice things, they're not necessarily evil. It's not like looking good is a bad thing or a job is a bad thing. But when identity becomes an idol, what you'll find is, think of our categories, out of control emotions, okay? Let's say your identity is a good athlete is your idol. Well, then your YMCA basketball league fight might tell you something about that. If academic achievement is an idol, look at the pattern of sin where you might be cheating, cutting corners on the tests, right? Not sleeping, not resting, over planning, obsessing. Academics can take hold of the heart. If your identity idol is found in your possessions, then you're willing to go into any amount of debt to get what you want when you want You're willing to buy stuff with money you don't have to impress people you don't care about. You'll sacrifice your future for your present. You see the pattern of sacrifice there? Even if appearance is your idol, think of the sacrifice of time you're spending working out, looking in the mirror when you could be developing character. Think of the comparison tendency with appearance. To compare yourself to an unrealistic and unreal standard of beauty and derive your identity from it. What does an identity idol promise you? It promises if you look this way or have this thing or achieve this thing, then you will be accepted. See, the relationship idol promised you'll be loved. 
You'll never be alone. The identity idol promises you'll be accepted. You'll be worth it. But here's the problem with that. You're building your life on a house of sand if you build your life on an identity idol. You see, there's always somebody out there who's better than you are, more beautiful than you are, smarter than you are, richer than you are. Every achievement you have has a lifespan. I mean, think about your GPA you're working so hard for. No one cares about that two years after you graduate. You know, there's a shelf life even on beauty. If you build your identity and you build your identity idolatry out on being good at life, being an achiever, being worth it, then what you'll find is ultimately at some point you will fail and the foundation of who you are will crumble. Okay, pleasure idolatry. Again, pleasure in and of itself is not a bad thing. God gave us all good gifts for our enjoyment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. Food and drink and sex and songs and joy are not bad. They're good gifts. But remember, God's best gifts are the most powerful sources of idolatry. And so in pleasure... What do we see? Think of the sexual display of idolatry, where what was designed by God as a good gift is used outside of God's good design. That was the point of Romans chapter 1, that we will break the boundaries of what God built in order to pursue what we want when we exchange God. It might not just be the, the idolatry of pleasure through sex, but what about entertainment? Just how many TV channels do we have to have to keep ourselves interested in our man caves? Like the, the big move in the house today for the home movie theater room so that we can retreat from the world. And again, time and sacrifice, inordinate emotions. The false promise of pleasure, what is it? That you can live a life of joy with no pain. If the idolatry relationship says you'll never be alone, the idolatry of identity says you can prove that you're worth it, that you're good enough, the idolatry of pleasure says that you can live a life where you don't have to feel the pain of the sin curse. You can have always joy and no pleasure. And what will happen eventually is you'll figure out in a pursuit of a life that has no pain, you've lived a life that actually has diminished its capacity for pleasure. The greatest source of pain that I've ever had in my life has come because I took the risk to love people and lost something in that relationship. But we weren't made to just simply feel pleasure in a world that's not full of only good. And our capacity for pleasure, if pursued far enough, is the gateway into addiction and life-dominating sin. You run to pleasure to ease the stress and the tension, but what happens is at the end of it, instead of simply masking your your pain, you find yourself pulled into addiction and you can't get out. Joy becomes something you believe you can get on demand, and so the normal joys that God gives of a hug, of a relationship, of dinner with family becomes something that seem worthless, lackluster. The pain pill you once took can't dull the pain anymore. You need more and more and more because pleasure idols enslave. They work like a drug. The initial rush will never be met. You'll need more and more and more to get to the same high. Okay. Pleasure idolatry. And religious idolatry, I'll mention just briefly, because sometimes what we do is we don't really worship the one true God, we worship our obedience. 
We, we worship our picture of religious performance. I mean, think of the Pharisees. They went through God's laws. They were meticulous. They did everything. I mean, think of the sacrifice they put into. Think of the display of inordinate emotion when Jesus confronts them. They lose their minds. They don't just want to oppose him. They want to kill him. Why? Because their performance was driving everything. The, a religious idol works this way. A religious idol says this basic equation. If you obey God, you'll be accepted by God. God owes those who work hard. I am accepted by my obedience. It's the exact opposite of the true gospel, which says, actually, I'm accepted not by my obedience, but by Christ's obedience. I obey not in order to be accepted. I obey God because I have been accepted freely and fully in Christ. Okay, so we've gone over four categories. Relationship idols, identity idols, pleasure idols, and religious idols, all of which you can see by looking at those patterns of sin, inordinate emotions, and sacrifices. These are things that we look to other than God for our salvation, assurance, and forgiveness. It's what we trust other than God on a functional level. So how is it that we actually can repent of the idols of the heart? How can we see relationships a good thing but not a God? How do we see our identity, our achievements is, is a fine thing when given, but not the definer of our life? How is it we move pleasure into a good joy, not just a life-dominating addiction? How is it that our religious performance becomes the source of life, not just the place for us to perform to earn God's acceptance? How do we get free from an idol? Well, at the most basic level, what you have to see is that everything that an idol promises you, God has actually already freely and fully given you at an incredible cost at the life of, loss of the life of his son, Jesus, on the cross. Think with me just briefly. The idol of relationships says you'll never be alone, but you know what happened? On the cross, Jesus was abandoned and alone so he could bring you into a relationship with God that will never truly end. That idol of identity the promise that you can be a success and be a somebody. You know, Jesus, the one who is truly great and beautiful, the ultimate somebody, became a nobody, took the form of an average Jewish man and died a disgusting, humiliating death. Why? Because Jesus, the ultimately beautiful one in the whole world, died for you and made you the non-beautiful, his treasure. While you were still a sinner, he loved you and died to prove it. The idol of pleasure promises an escape from pain, But Jesus, who had known only perfect pleasure for all of eternity, didn't run away from pain. He died the most painful death known to man in order to offer you fullness of joy and pleasure at his right hand forevermore. Because he endured the pain of the cross, he can offer you the pleasure of heaven. The idol of religious performance will promise you, you know, if you obey, if you pray enough, if you try hard enough, God will hear and accept you. But actually, here's the best news in all the world. The best news in all the world is that you can be accepted by God because Jesus lived the life you could never live, died the death you deserve to die, and has risen from the dead, victorious over sin, death, and hell, so that he can offer you God's approval as a product of his forgiveness and perfect life. In other words, you get freedom from the idols of the heart when your heart becomes amazed at the beauty of Jesus 
in their place. You begin to see with the eyes of the heart the weakness of the idols that you are pursuing, the emptiness that while they may promise you everything, they can deliver ultimately nothing. And what you see is that Jesus endured the curse of the idol to give you only the blessing of his goodness. If you can see that on the cross, Jesus endured every curse so that he can give you his blessings freely by faith, then the heart's affections, their loves, begin to move away from the idol and toward Jesus. Because remember, idolatry operates at the level of affection. Our problem isn't just a problem of action, it's a problem of affection. The Romans 1 problem of idolatry is not simply a problem with doing bad things, it's a problem with loving the wrong things or loving the right things the wrong way. And so the medication to give treatment to the disease of idolatry is not just a change of action, but a change of affection, a change of heart, a change of love. What we have to have happen I'm going to read a quote from Tim Keller as we close here. He says, idolatry, it's not just a failure to obey God. Idolatry is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or trying to use willpower to live differently. No, turning from the idol is not less than these two things. It's just more. We have to set the mind and heart on things above where our life is hidden with Christ and God, Colossians chapter 3. That means we have to learn how to appreciate, rejoice, and rest in what Jesus has done for us. It is joyful worship, a sense of God's reality in the heart. And listen to this final line from Keller. Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace your counterfeit God if you uproot the idol and instead plant the love of Christ in its place. End quote. We need to move the affections of the heart away from love of what we have been pursuing the idol and replace it with the love of Christ by looking at him. So Romans 1, if it gives us a diagnosis of the depth of our sin condition and idolatry, that good diagnosis also gives us some hope that if we will turn away from what we pursue in the idol to see and believe that it's there for us in the gospel of Jesus, that our hearts, the affections of our hearts can move toward it. So let's do that work. Let's uproot and identify the idols of the heart and allow the love of Christ to flourish in their place.